Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello podcasters, welcome once again to Living History. It's great to be here with you. I'm your host, Matt McLaughlin, and I hope you've enjoyed the series of special episodes we brought you in July dedicated to the 50th anniversary of man landing on the moon. If you didn't listen to those, go back and check them out because just some remarkable interviews there, the highlight of which was our interview with Charlie Duke the 10th man to walk on the moon as part of Apollo 16. And that episode of the podcast is now officially the most downloaded episode we've ever done. So thank you very much for engaging so strongly with that story because it was a fantastic interview uh, with just a lovely man. Charlie Duke was a real pleasure to speak to and it's wonderful that we got to hear his stories. Like always, if you are enjoying what we're doing on the podcast, please subscribe and please give us a review and give us a star rating because that's really important to make sure other people find us and we can continue to bring you great stories in history. Today, I'm out on the road. I get a lot of feedback that people enjoy these episodes where I go out and visit an institution, and today we've got a pretty special one. I was fortunate to go to the State Library of New South Wales, which is a treasure trove of rare and important manuscripts related to Australian history. And I was shown around there by a curator, Maggie Patton, and she has a great love and a great passion for these rare and just fascinating pieces of history, these manuscripts, these objects in the collection of the State Library. And what a wonderful couple of hours I spent with Maggie in the bowels of this building surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands of historic books. So we didn't really know where to begin. There were literally thousands of books we could have looked at and objects from the collection. So we we looked at a selection of those objects. Please go to the Facebook page, go to our website, to see images of these incredible manuscripts and objects. I will definitely do a follow-up because we didn't begin to scratch the surface of some of the incredible items that are in the collection of the State Library of New South Wales. But it was just a real pleasure to get down there, get into the archives and explore some of their fascinating documents, archives and manuscripts. So please enjoy this episode as I visit the State Library of New South Wales. Well, we've come down in a lift down several floors and we're now here in the most amazing archive surrounded by old books. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us and for showing us this incredible collection. It's a pleasure. So tell us a little bit, a bit about you before we get started. How long have you been here at the State Library and, and, um, and what specifically do you do here? I've been here for 29 years last month and at the moment I manage uh, the team of curators who research the collection, promote the collection, write about the collection. But in 29 years, I've done a number of different jobs here. Started off as a reference librarian in the reading room and just moved my way around. What's the State Library trying to do with this incredible collection, particularly the rarer, the older books? Why are they even here and, 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 and what is the purpose of having this collection in the State Library? Okay, so now why do we have all of these books here? I suppose to begin with, you need to remember that the library's roots are in the 1826 subscription library. So we started very early in the colony. And so this is when people are gathering books together. They're trying to share information. They're on the other side of the world. Uh, settlers, etc., have got their private collections. They're sharing them, you know, on agriculture, history, on the classics. And it's about a thirst for knowledge and information at the beginning of the colony. So that was the Australian Subscription Library. And it was mainly books. And then the Australian, Australian Subscription Library then eventually turned into the Free Public Library of Sydney, and then the Public Library of New South Wales. Then we start to acquire manuscripts and pictures, photographs, 
newspapers, journals. Uh, David Scott Mitchell adds his amazing collection of books, manuscripts, maps, stamps. Sir William Dixon adds his, adds his collection. And back in, 18, in the 1870s, we become a legal deposit library. So every book published in New South Wales needs to be deposited here in the library. So we have been growing since you know the 1820s, and really we're we're, we're here as a res for two things, I suppose. Well, for many things, but we're here as a resource uh, a resource for the people of New South Wales, Australia, for researchers, for study, for students, as a as a source of information. We're also um, a holder and um, an institution, a memory institution that collects, maintains, preserves and provides access to the record of, of, of Australia's history and, and of a whole range of history. So we're, we're about access, but we're also about um, maintaining and preserving. You mentioned that the library has been here since the 1820s. That's within 30-odd years of yes, the, even yeah. the, 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 the founding of yes. the colony of New South Wales. Hmm. It seems then, therefore, that a library, uh, this public institution, this this repository of knowledge, was always an important aspect of the colony. Is that something that still applies today, or does that hark back to many centuries ago? No, it's still important today. I mean, you know, thousands of years ago with the library at Alexandria, libraries have always been important, and it was always going to be important to have a library here in Australia. And it still remains important. You know, libraries are just as important as they were there and become increasingly more important because there is so much knowledge. And now you've got digital collections, you've got um, digital photographs and all sorts of other media. How do you maintain and store that and provide access? So libraries have a huge role in doing that. Incredibly important about providing, providing access to this information to a whole community that have got different levels of um, technology access, uh, we are part of a huge public library network that provides resources throughout New South Wales to all sorts of communities. So libraries are now not just a hub of information, but they're a community space where people come. You know, you're upstairs in the foyer. People are coming to talks. They're coming to the cafe to talk. The, the reading rooms are full of students who are doing their work using, on, you know, just the internet. We pro- most libraries provide free Wi-Fi. Because and, and people use it, not just travellers, but students. So, you know, I've been here 29 years. I'm here because libraries are fantastic places. How do libraries cope with this changing environment, new technologies, digitisation? There seems that in the last couple of decades in particular, there's been this whole new direction that information has headed off in. We're here surrounded by these incredible manuscripts that are centuries old. How does a library like this one keep up with these Mm. massive changes in technology and the way people are absorbing information? I think it's what libraries have done for centuries. We have to adapt to new technology. You know, we did it when the printing press came in. We did it when mass printing production came in in the 19th century. This is a much bigger challenge. So now we have um, lots of IT digital systems. Um, we have developed a whole lot of new skills. The people who work in libraries have a whole range of backgrounds. We all have, you know, um, IT systems. Um, and we, um, just in the last few weeks, have had the legal deposit legislation changed so that now we are also, um, people are obliged to deposit digital um, publications. So we change the way we work. We change the way we provide access to collections and the way we store them. You know, at the moment, we're trying to figure out how we're going to um, do long-term preservation for digital resources, you know, because things have come in here on tapes, on USBs. Um, hardly anyone puts anything on a CD-ROM now, but we've got huge collections of CD-ROMs. So how do we migrate that content onto a digital platform and then keep on changing that platform of that digital content so that in 50 years' time, 100 years' time, when its digital systems are changed, people can still access? Huge challenges. It's not just a technological uh, challenge as well, it seems to me, because... People in the old days, when I was growing up, you'd take a photo, you'd get it developed at the chemist, and then you'd write on the back of it, this is this is Aunt Madge and Uncle Bob at the pictures. And so you always had this family archive of information about your family. You could always go to that shoebox or that photo album and pull out a photo. Today, we're taking many more photos than we ever have before. 
but they're completely out of context. And if my children come along in 20 years' time and they are even able to access my digital files, they're going to have no idea what they're looking at or who, who is in any of those photos. From your position, is that a genuine um, challenge that we face and, and how do we begin to even overcome those sorts of things? It is um, a genuine challenge and I suppose that's sometimes some of the public programs that we do. How do you look after your private collections? How do you organise them properly? How do you back up your photographs? How do you make sure that you always keep a second copy of a photograph? And how do you organise your personal collections? You know, how do you make sure that your you keep your personal files or photographs in archive quality folders? It is a challenge. It's one of those things that we go out and talk to communities about. But it is also a challenge for us because um, things that happen today that we acquire today often don't have an importance and a resonance until many years in the future. And so what we have to do is we have to go out to organisations we talk to politicians, to sportsmen and women, to authors and, and artists about how they keep their records in a way that in the future we can acquire them. Because right now there's a whole generation that are dying and their, um, their children are coming to us and saying, you know, this is a fantastic collection. It's disorganised. As you say, they don't know what it is. And so there's a huge burden on in collecting institutions to sort that out. And so what we have to do now is we um, proactively go out to people and go out to communities. We go out to authors and we say, we need you to start organising your stuff. We need you to start chucking out what isn't important um, and organising it properly. So, it is, you know, that's, that's a big challenge too. And how important are those private records? You mentioned families who have photos and records that they've that been that have been in the family how important is that to our collective understanding of our history and 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 our culture how important are those private records versus something that's more formal like a book or a, or a newspaper or a manuscript they're incredibly important and that's a key part of what this collection is so we have the records of um, first fleeters we have um, you know early colonial families um, early authors. Um, at the moment, we have something you know as bizarre as in our collector's gallery downstairs. We have um, Patrick White's tea cup, um, um, egg cup and spoon, and his cutlery. We've got cutlery from Cook and Flinders, and so they're just everyday objects that later on have significance. And so every piece of information that you think might not be important can have importance in the future. And how does it feel to you to be surrounded by these wonderful direct connections with history? We can we can talk about William Shakespeare and we can mm. read about it, but to 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 actually read his plays published only a few years after he mm. died, how how does it make you feel every day to be surrounded by these incredible works? Very privileged, um, and I think you know we all have jobs where we're working hard, long hours, going to meetings, writing reports managing staff but to bring you back to earth and to give your give joy in your job is to actually look and feel and talk and research these items so i'm very very lucky well you have been kind enough to show us some of the wonderful items from the collection so yes. what are we beginning with well we're beginning with um something that I've become very familiar with over the years. When I started at the library, I, I was a reference librarian and um, we had a rare books librarian and, and times changed. And, and so a group of us started to look at the rare books collections and start to learn about them. And um, so over the last 20 years or so, I've gathered sort of items in the collection that I love working with and I tend to know a bit more about. And so the first, Shakespeare's first folio is one of those things that um, – um, is never fails to amaze people and um, here it is here. It's um, bound in red calfskin with some beautiful um, gold detail, gold tooling. It's, um, as you said, incredibly significant. This is the first time that Shakespeare's plays are published in one volume in 1623. It's called The First Folio. And it contains 36 plays written by Shakespeare. 18 of them had never been published before. 
So in Shakespeare's days, plays weren't very important. They were just there to be performed. They weren't things that were, were printed like a uh, like a set of poetry or something like that. And so uh, when he died, uh, two fellow actors, um, Hemmings and Condal, decided to go about publishing all of his plays. So they had to go around and find all of the various editions of those plays, particularly the 18 that have never been published. And if they hadn't gone to that bother, it may well be that we would never have evidence of those 36 plays. So the folio itself has the very famous um, title page with the portrait of Shakespeare, one of few that's known. And then it has um, dedications to Shakespeare it has a fantastic um, title page, which, um, sorry, a contents page. Uh, this was the first time that the plays were divided into comedies, histories and tragedies. And the first folio is great because it's got so many things to talk about. And I could be here for hours, but we're not, not going to keep talking about Shakespeare's first folio. The reason why it's fantastic is, one, is it about Shakespeare? It's about Shakespeare's plays. It's about the history of publishing because in those days copyright wasn't owned by the author. And so to get permission to, to print these things, there was a lot of shenanigans going around. It's about, um, it's about printing. So to print this volume, it took, you know, well, he died in 1616. It appeared in 1623. Um, it was printed in a big printing house, um, but they were printing other things at the same time. They would run out of type. Um, they had a number of different printers working on it. Some were experienced, one, some of them weren't. There's printing errors. So you can talk about the history of Shakespeare, the plays, the printing. And let's not forget that this is about printing, um, 1623, um, the first metal type was used in Europe in 1455. Uh, the 16th century, they're learning a lot about printing, but the printing in industry in, in England has a whole history. So it's also about, you know, printing houses and publishers and, and how they lay out the page and the quality of the paper and the quality of the ink. Endless conversations about the first folio. This is the only copy held in Australia. Um, there's one in New Zealand. There are only a couple in the Southern Hemisphere. There's probably only 250 or so that exist in the world today of the ones that were printed. And it's part of a set, and that's why it's so important, is that 1623 was the first folio. It's so popular they do another printing in 1632. That's the second folio. In 1664, it's the third folio. And in 1684... It's the fourth folio, and so to have the set, the first, second, and third, and fourth folios, incredibly significant for our institution. Absolutely wonderful. I mean, this is sitting in front of us right now. Mm. I'll put some photos up, but it's a big, heavy. Yeah, I'm amazed at how thick and heavy this is. This is one of the most significant books ever it published, is. isn't it? It is. That's exactly right. And we have a copy here in this library. Wonderful. We have a copy here in this library because it was donated to us in 1885. So we acquire things, we buy them, they're deposited with us, they're donated with us. And to think that in 1885 someone thought it was important to donate this to us also tells you about the importance of libraries as a holding place for knowledge and information for people to use. Wonderful. Can I, may I have a look? You may certainly do. Do I need gloves? or? Yes, you do need some gloves. Okay. <laughs> that is amazing. You can see uh, that the first few pages are a bit spotty. That's because in our copy of the first folio, the first few pages are facsimiles. Okay. Late 18th century facsimiles, so they're pretty old. Okay. But as you move through, you, you'll see that it's not quite as beautifully clean and as strong as some of the other pages. I'm very so nervous. You can probably see. I'm, I'm <laughs> just, have, don't I, you worry. I'm watching you. It's, it's, oh, it's just incredible. Like, I mean... So there's the Tempest. Now look at here. You've got here, this is about the printing history. So you've turned to the Merry Wives of Windsor. So let's have a look there. Instead of a capital W, you've got two Vs put together because clearly on the day they'd run out of capitals. <laughs> and then look up here. The Merry Wives of Windsor, the head at the top has been crossed out and someone has written in ink, Two Gentlemen of Verona, because they planned the book but they and they guessed how many pages they'd need for each play, 
And then, of course, as they're going through, they're, they're organising the printing press and they've made a mistake because there's no proofreader in Shakespeare in the first folio. So quite often they'll find a mistake, they'll keep printing pages and then, then they'll correct the mistake. So each first folio is actually completely different to the next because some will have correct pages and others will have ones that have been correct. Absolutely amazing. And I don't think it's a coincidence I opened up to this page because I believe this is probably the most famous two pages in the uh, in the folio because it's the one with the random the just printed yes, that's down right. in the bottom right-hand corner at the bottom yeah. of page 38, which mm. uh, having read about this, I know that, that <laughs> the, they have no idea why this is just a capitalised the in in large letters down in the bottom right that belongs nowhere. That's right. So I think I'm not the first person to open up to this page. Uh, Perhaps that's what it or, is. Or it's fate. That's but, right. Uh, absolutely amazing. I, 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 won't, I won't spend too long touching it because for Can many... Can you hear that now? Can you hear that sound? I will do that again. Can you hear that crunch? Yeah, absolutely. That's really good quality paper. Wow. It's incredible. Mm. I know that this for, for many centuries people have been looking through this and I know that for many more mm. centuries people would look through it so I won't spend too much time going through it but it's just, as we say, it's just incredible history too. And so this sort of, an item like this is kept um, in our um, strictest um, security area. Um, we have um, constant checking of um, temperature and humidity in our stacks so we're really looking after them. So it's lasted um, how many years? Over 400 years and it will last many, many more. Wonderful. Thank you. That's a, a wonderful start to our journey Okay, that's through the pa- literally through the pages of history. <laughs> okay, that's the first folio. Wonderful. What shall we look at next? Okay, let's look at this as something curious. Okay, so it's... Um, it's 19... This is, not, this is not a book we're looking at now. No, no, Again, I'll take a, a photo. It's called an object, and some people call them realia, um, and it's a bottle. And it's a, it's a bottle of um, what looked had pickles in it. And it's part of an amazing story which has a significance for 2019. So 100 years ago, after the First World War, um, planes had obviously been a key feature of the war and it was decided by Billy Hughes, who was the Prime Minister at the time of Australia, that they really needed to do something about encouraging flight. And so what he did is he um, said that he would give £10,000 to the first plane crew that flew from London to Australia. And so um, it was a great competition Six teams um, started the flight. Um, they it, it had to be within 30 days, but obviously it took much longer. They had to have a whole lot of stops on the way to refuel their planes. Um, you know, the planes weren't used to travelling those distances. There were lots of incidents as they came, you know, where they, they ran out of fuel or they uh, broke a bit of the engine or they came into terrible weather. Um, so the... Um, the winners were the um, Ross brothers and they had a, a Vickers Vimy plane. Uh, so this this bottle was uh, donated to the library and if you have a look at it, you can actually see it's got some string on it. So what happened, they were on their la- the last leg of their journey flying from New Guinea across to Darwin and at all points along the way, um, people were making sure that they landed. So HMS Sydney was um, uh, sailing along across the coast of Northern Territory, keeping an eye out in case there was any crash and they had to save someone. But they were doing fine and they dropped this bottle out of the plane with a message saying all was fine. It was dropped into the water and the crew of the HMS Sydney picked it up and they took it on board. And so this is the bottle that was dropped from the plane in 1919, and so they arrive in Darwin in December 1919. And so we acquired this a number of years ago, and we also have the messages that were put that was put into the bottle, and we have also have a fantastic set of maps that show the various legs of the flight as it's coming from London 
to um, Northern Territory and then it takes them 30 more days before they land in Sydney. When they get to the Blue Mountains, they're seen and a message is sent down to Sydney and um, uh, a message is sent out from the GPO to say they're on their way and people rush to the airport to meet them in their plane. And so it's a lovely piece of history. So we have this, we have the messages, we have the maps. And if you, I don't know whether it was like this now. I still think you can smell pickles in that bottle. (laughs) Have a smell. I agree, I agree. It was an Escoffier pickle bottle (laughs) from 1919, which they must have eaten the pickles and then thought, oh, we'll use this as the bottle to throw out from the plane. Because, of course, no radios in those days. No radios. They had no radios on the entire trip. Absolutely extraordinary. What a wonderful piece Mm. of Australian Mm. history, especially Mm. in this, the centenary year of it, Mm. first being flung out of that aircraft. And I suppose that's, that's an interesting thing too. We have, you have objects and papers from people who were great, but you also have objects that have very, very small significance, but are beautiful. They're objects that began yes. as insignificant but have That's become right. great. Become because great over time. How many pickle jars are sitting mm. on shelves from yeah. 100 years That's ago right. all around the country? Yeah. But this one is That's a significant right. one. You look, and when the first folio was printed, it wasn't great. And in fact, the Bodleian Library, when the second folio came out, sold their first folio because they thought the second folio would be a better edition. <laughs> 100 years of later, they had to buy back the original volume. <laughs> and of course, this is the um, centenary of the Great Air Race. Wonderful. That's a great item. Hmm. What else have we got here? Now, I'm a bit of a map person. So the library has, oh, I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand maps in the collection. Um, A lot of them are hydrographic charts, um, the sorts of standard maps you would expect. But we have a lot of historical maps in the collection. And the thing about maps, if you like maps, you'll know this. Not only do they tell you where they are, where you are, but the the design um, and the reason they're created is a whole other story. And so this is a map from 1788. It's one of the first maps of the new colony. Oh, look at that. It's um, not just a map, it's a work of art. It's a work of art. It's a very naive map. It's not, you know, the sort of map that you would use now to get around. And you can see it shows the colony. I think it's in April um, 1788. And so you can see uh, where the where the garden is, uh, the governor's house, where where the farm is. You can also see where the marines are camped. Uh, the the convicts, the male and the female convicts, of course, are kept completely separate. You can see where the eleven uh, ships of the first fleet are in the in Sydney Cove. Uh, down here you can see uh, it's called Brickfield because, of course, that's where they identified the clay to build the, the bricks for the colony. Now, this map is in, incredibly unique, unique. Probably only two or three copies actually exist. Um, it's, it's printed um, and hand-coloured and at the time I think would have cost about two shillings. So... What happened is many of the, the it was painted by uh, a convict called Francis Folks. Um, he was actually, um, I think he was a sailor. He he was, and he was convicted of of theft and then transported to the colony. So he was he was trained as a, as a drawer. So he had those skills before he came to the colony. And of course, there's a whole story there around the skills of the convicts that were were then used for the development of the colony. So he drew this map. And then in May 1788, a number of um, uh, manuscripts and, and things like this are sent back on the first ship that heads back to London. And the people in England and in Europe are really, they're desperate for news about what's happening on the other side of the world. And so there's a lot of publishing going on. So many people in the first, you know, the, um, uh they actually write books that then go back and get printed. So this is an example of a map that then was printed. And so for the first time, people can see what the colony looks like. As you said, Maggie, you wouldn't want to use this as a, for any sort of navigation these days no, because Sydney no. Harbour uh, by this scale is only a couple of hundred metres wide. Um, <laughs> but just extraordinary. Again, mm. there's a there's a 
there's a delightful naivety to it. There's, there's almost an optimism, which is which is in yes. stark contrast to what was actually going on in the colony at the time, where That's they right. were struggling. That That's well, they right. arrived and they struggled from the start. They did. Yet the map, it's there's a, there's a, there's almost a fondness here. It's 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 done in a way that. You know, it's 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 mm. it's pretty. It's very neatly laid out. It's it's in stark contrast to what was actually happening in their daily lives on the ground. I love it. Well, this is probably what was of interest to him, wasn't it? But there's certainly no no evidence of of anything. He was a talented it's, artist. It's a beautiful work yeah, of art. It's, it it's it's obviously more valuable as a work of art than it is as a as a navigational tool. But it's it's absolutely stunning. So that's our Francis Fuchs map from 1788. So what we're doing also increasingly is we're digitising our collections, so people don't actually have to come into the library to see them. And so this is certainly digitised and online, just as the first folio and all the things that we talk about today. I think that's it's a really important part of of the, the modern way that institutions are dealing with their content, isn't it? Because mm. we see that a lot of the listeners to this podcast are big fans of military history and the work that the Australian War Memorial does, for example, with digitising mm. service records of soldiers, something that a few decades ago would have been seen as a complete waste of time, mm. now is absolutely essential Very in important. how we see yeah. ourselves telling our family stories, mm. telling mm. our own story. It's mm. really important that we can get access to these documents. Mm. And um, I, I, I love the new the new wave of digitisation that's taking yeah. place in institutions yeah. across the world. It's absolutely fantastic. Which leads us very well to our next object. So at the end of World War I in 1918, uh, the principal librarian at the library here wow. thought that it was incredibly important for us to record what happened during the war, but not the official side of it, but the stories of the servicemen and women who were on the battlefield, who were in the hospitals. And so we started the um, the Great War Collecting Project and um, over the next few years we acquired, as they came back from overseas, the diaries, the letters, uh, photographs, photograph albums of people returning from the First World War. It's a fantastic collection. And so there's over 500 collections of diaries and letters representing hundreds of different um, levels of service. What an amazing just act of foresight for those people to do that. Because I know the First World War is so important to us Mm, today, mm. and I know it was at the time as well to the people that came back, Um, but they never could have known the legacy that they would be leaving behind. So it's incredible that that the library undertook that yes. and recognised yeah, that yeah, yeah. a century before we, right. would, we would realise the significance. So the principal librarian then, Mr Ifield, knew that and he knew that he was collecting these for the future and for future researchers. And he wanted to say, so what they did is he put an advertisement in the paper saying we're interested in your, your diaries, etc. And, and it was almost promotional. It, it almost said, and your private life and, and your memories can be part of a great institutional library along with the papers of Macquarie and Cook and, and all of those important people. So he was putting them at an equal level. That's inc- this is an incredible item. So just to describe it, it's, yes. it's a timber case it's in the shape of a book but it's a timber case mm. from what i can gather with a with a lock on it uh and a color patch of the 37th battery of the 10th brigade fourth division um field artillery and what i assume is uh the initials of the person that we're yes going to be talking about yes so terence garling uh was um in the war for a number of years and he sent letters back to his parents um he died in april 1918. And so this is a box that his family put together to keep his collection of diaries and letters in. Oh, wow. And it's a memorial to their son. So you can see in front of the bound volume it says, In Memoriam Terence 1914 to 1918. Just extraordinary. And in it, if you have a look through, it's an incredibly moving oh, wow. thing. At the beginning, you have um, photographs, and there's an introduction talking about his military career um, and what it did during what he did during the war. He died at the Battle of the Somme, but you can see how how much they've they've put everything together to make it just with such reverence just and care. The, um, what we're looking at is handwritten letters that he's obviously sent back from the front, but bound into the most beautiful volume, a thick, heavy, wonderful volume, mm. obviously with great care. 
Yes. At great expense, I would imagine, as well. It would have at the time to put this together. And you can see even just looking at it. So he's fighting he's fighting at different fronts. There's small bits of paper, there's old bit there's blue bits of paper. Sometimes he's writing in pencil, sometimes he's writing in ink. But he's taken the time to write back at all times. And then at the end you can see the story of what happens. You can see this one here. His parents have written his last letter. So this is from the 29th of March, 1918 in France. Then you get the telegrams. So the local um, minister was sent around to tell his parents. And then what is just so beautiful is then the letters that his parents get from his friends, from fellow soldiers, from officers, saying what a wonderful um, officer he was. So you can see they've put in a thing here which says letters of condolence and appreciation from king and queen, military officers and men of the battery. Um, There's the original letter from the Governor-General about his death, edged in black, which was typical for that sort of period. Uh, But they're beautiful and there's there's things from cousins and, um, yeah, it's it's a beautiful volume. I don't know whether you can read any of those. Mr. and Mrs. Garling, just a few lines to convey to you my sincere sympathy for the loss of your son, Major Garling. As a gunner of the 37th Battery, I saw a great deal of Major Garling under very trying conditions, and his personal courage and consideration for the men under his command gained him the affection and respect of everyone with whom he came in contact. It's just what an extraordinary It's extraordinary, isn't it? And so you read these letters. They're just amazing. It's just, uh, the thing about this is this is obviously very, very personal for the family. They put this together for themselves. But there's a great, uh, they've given us a great gift, haven't they? Because for them, this was obviously very significant. And and Mm. you you ask the question, you wonder, when did they bring this out? When did they read these letters? On Anzac Day, did they they retire to the the drawing room and and take these out and read the letters? Mm. So we don't know what personally how they chose to use this book to remember him and then but what they've done now is now that they're all gone there's now mm. a great gift for us this incredible mm, legacy of this one man it? and we we mm. don't have this of individual soldiers and the one thing mm. as a military historian i always struggle with is painting that complete picture we, we mm. always make the the anzacs two-dimensional we yes. talk about them charging the beaches yes, at Gallipoli yes. or yeah. slogging through the mud at passchendaele yeah it's very difficult to paint a picture of them as mm. fully fleshed out human beings. And, and that's, that's even right. just from, from looking through these letters, I can see that's yeah. exactly what this does. Just extraordinary. So this is just part of, of the collection that we have here. All of our diaries and letters from First World War have all been fully digitised. Um, we did a major project for 2014 for the centenary uh, and they have all been fully transcribed. And you can search across that whole collection for particular instances for battles. But you're right, what is incredible about the collection is the personal stories that they tell. Some of the most gruelling, um, heart-rending stories are those from uh, people in the hospitals, the the stretcher bearers, because of what they see. Um, But you also hear the fantastic stories, you know, when they go to London and they go to the theatre and all of the things that happen to them. So it's a fantastic collection. I know that lots of military historians have um, have been so grateful that that collection mm. exists because it does paint, obviously, men from New South Wales, but it paints a very good mm. picture of, mm. of a large group of men. And those letters would be lost to time. Mm. They would have mm. they would have spread to the many to the winds. Right. They would have been thrown out by families. Who, it's who very funny care, when so when when they came in. However, you know that we used to we either sometimes we paid money for them, sometimes we reje- rejected them. So we actually have examples of rejection letters where, where the librarian has said, oh, no, there's not enough information in here, I'm sorry. We won't take that. But we've continued to collect and, in fact, over the last few years we have had even more diaries and letters letters donated to us. Wonderful. Um, so, and it's people who are now clearing out the cupboards and the drawers and the shoeboxes and they're finding these fantastic records and now they have a place to come and that's a role that we have. Wonderful. Extraordinary. Mm-hmm. We have an exhibition upstairs which is about the children of World War One, and the letters that they wrote back to their, fa- to their father and the father wrote back home. They're, they're incredibly moving too with lots of hugs and kisses. Look, this isn't one of the ones that I thought I'd, uh, that I didn't plan to talk about, but I just wanted to... to, to um, this is one of my favourite small items, which um, 
you know, in the scheme of things, isn't much. But I think it's just some things that give you pleasure. And this is, we talked about Shakespeare before, and this is um, a Kelmscott publication. So everyone knows William Morris of the carpets and the wallpapers and the fabrics. But um, William Morris started the Kelmscott Press. Um, and it was um, in the 1890s um, in response to the mass printing and the productions of the 19th century. And it was harking back to the beautiful work that was done in Renaissance and in the Middle Ages with the, the ink. And, the, and so this is a copy of Shakespeare's poems by Kelmscott Press. And can I tell you, reading a sonnet from the Kelmscott Press published in 1893 is so much nicer than a 1988 Penguin Shakespeare sonnet. <laughs> it's, a, again, a beautiful It's item. a beautiful object. I love the, Maggie, I love the layers that we're getting here. It's the information on the pages mm. is really important, but the pages themselves yes. are so wonderful. Look at that, look at that font. Look, look at the, the, the font. colours that have yeah, been used, the yeah. red and black. Yeah. Just, it's, it's just, it is. It they're, is. They're wonderful things. To just be around. Mm. You, you don't mm. need to be reading every word on the page. No, you don't. Just, they're just lovely no. things to be around. No. I can see why people enjoy collecting mm. oh, old yeah. manuscripts and, and books. That's right. I mean, this is um, private press. People love collecting private press. This morning I was giving a talk to some people on old Bibles in the collection, and I'm not particularly into the religious side of old Bibles, but the story of Bibles is just, um, you know, it's just fascinating. fascinating. Well, I think a Bible is probably Politics. an example of, of something that – Again, transcends that idea of what's written on the page. No offence to anyone who's religious and listening, um, but that people produced Bibles in varying conditions at varying times mm, for, mm, for varying mm, reasons, mm. and that's what's revealed in, that's in those right. books. That's right. Um, you know, we've got a Bible over there that was supposedly owned by Charles the First. Well, I don't think so. Well, we could be lucky. There's a note on it that says this was taken out of the personal library of Charles the First. Not so sure. <laughs> this item I'm going to show you just because I had it out today. It's normally in the strong room and I wouldn't be able to show this. This is a, oh, wow. a book of ours from 15th century. Wow. So this is a personal prayer book uh, that was um, really um, the fashion in from about the 14th through to the 16th century. And it was when people were, were doing their own personal prayers. It, it gives you each the prayers to say across the day. And they have a certain formula about them. Uh, this is a calendar. So each book of ours starts with a calendar. And you can see the red and the black. So the red are for red letter days. So that's where we get that expression. They were the important feast days. And then it goes on to various prayers for the Virgin. Um, this particular one that I'm showing you now, um, it's, you can probably see it's on vellum. You can see where they've ruled up the pages. Then the text has been handwritten. Oh, look at And then we get to this beautiful illuminated page, all hand-coloured. You can see the glint of the gold leaf that's that's highlighting the image. And um, beautiful, beautiful work. Stunning and all, as you Mm. say, all hand-done. Just incredible. Mm. Mm. That's absolutely So a personal prayer book from the 15th century. Absolutely. Look at the... Just some of the detail mm, in these mm, works of art. Mm. Go to the website and have a look at the photos. Go to our Facebook page where I'll put these photos up because these things are just mm. absolutely extraordinary. So this is the Sydney Gazette and New South Wales Advertiser. This is the first newspaper printed in Australia, March the 5th, 1803, um, printed by um, George Howe who was the government printer. Now, when the First Fleet came out, they had a small wooden printing press, which was not used straight away. They didn't have the skills, I think, to use a printer. Um, There was a bit of printing done in the 1790s by another convict who had printing skills, but this was the first time that we actually had a government printer. And so the first book that was printed in Australia was um, in 1802, which was called The Standing Orders, a particularly dry book, which was just about all of the, you know, the standing orders, the organisation of the colony. Uh, and then in 1803, they started the first newspaper. It's just four pages. Um, you can see it includes all the things you'd expect to have in a newspaper. Uh, there's the general orders. So it was an instrument of the state. Um, so it has things that, and the, of course the government checked what he was doing. Uh, but it also has, um, auctions, uh, shipping news, news of fugitives, 
um, what's going on in front of the court, um, accidents, um, nautical information, shipping news. Uh, down the bottom here, it's got information on how to um, grow vines in the new colony. So an incredibly important tool of information. It started off in 1803 and it was the only newspaper in, in the colony until the 1820s. Um, it went until uh, the 1840s. Uh, at various times, just like, you know, all of those, the history of Bibles and Shakespeare, all of those things, the content in it is important, but it's also a reflection of the history at the time. There were times when they ran out of paper and he'd put advertisements in there to see if anyone had any paper that they could recycle. <laughs> uh, he ran out of ink. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, yeah. So you can see it has the masthead here. It says um, in large letters, thus we hope to prosper. prosper. Doesn't that summarise the uh, early right. days of the colonies? that we hope to prosper? prosper. Not, not we shall prosper, nothing can stop us. We hope to prosper. Published by authority. So it was a government-sponsored. But he was um, allowed to earn money through um, advertising, although there's per various periods when he really is in trouble financially. Um, it, through the time, sometimes you can see it's a bit yellowed where they've been using different quality paper. But it tells you all the people that are wanted. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating piece of, of history. Um, very rare to have a full um, set of, of the Sydney Gazette. Uh, there are only a few complete sets. Again, it's been fully digitised and you can go on to Trove and have a look at this and search through, see what it says about the day that you were born. Just extraordinary. I'm just looking at uh, August 14, 1803. Lost on Wednesday, the tenth instant. A remarkable grey hound dog, about eight months old, liver coloured, with white legs, and answering to the name of Spring, the property of a gentleman. <laughs> every, every person is strictly cautioned against keeping the said dog, and whoever will give information concerning him to G. Howe will be liberally rewarded. It's just lovely stuff, isn't well, it? Well, it is. It's just a standard newspaper. That's that's the front page of the paper. So a gentleman yeah. has lost his dog. That's is, right. Uh, and there's a notice. In 1803, mm. 15 mm. years after the... Uh, 20 but years you after find information about, you know, robberies and murders. Murders. Can you read that one there? Jo Joseph? Joseph Luca, a constable whose time off duty commenced at 12 o'clock, went off his post, as is conjectured, was shortly afterwards found on the edge of the road leading to Farm Cove. A, a breathless corpse, shockingly mangled, and with the guard of his cutlass buried in his brain. This one's here. It says Spanish paper. Any quality will be immediately purchased by the printer of this paper. Gentlemen or others, having such to part with, however, smaller compliment, are requested to favour him with notice thereof in Pitt's Row. So he's clearly in September 1803 running out of paper for the next edition. It's the sort of thing you could lose yourself in over over many many hours, couldn't you? Just reading about these things. But again, it tells us there's so many layers. This is, as you say, the paper that it's printed on tells us amazing stories about what was going on in the colony. You know, as the as the as the quality of the paper gets worse as we get as we go on, the, the physical paper it's printed on, we can see they're running out of of paper. The types of stories they choose to put in there, the the language of the day, and again, in a place where from their perspective, was barely civilised. And yet they have newspapers, and you, you imagine the gentlemen and the ladies reading their newspapers uh, over, a, over a scone and a cup of tea in the morning. Absolutely incredible. Maggie, I love items like this. It's just, it tells us so much about, it tells us a lot about ourselves and it reveals how far we've come all at the same time. It's just extraordinary. Is there anything else you want to... I don't know. What else would you like to... What, what's your, what would you be interested in? Let me see if I can find it. What about... Give me you... a challenge. What about something like, um, do we have like a journal of Captain Cook or, a, you know, like these iconic? What I, I don't have Captain Cook's journals, but I do have a Bible that was supposedly taken on all three voyages. Oh, wow. Okay. that Definitely. We'd like to see that. So this here is a Bible from 1765, if I can get it open. <laughs> One of the things we do is create these beautiful um, clamshell boxes. Oh, look at that. Now, the story goes that Cook had this volume for all three of his voyages. Now, this story comes to us from Elizabeth Cook, his wife. So, um, and it was acquired in 1886. So, um, 
a number of um, Cook and Elizabeth Cook's um, belongings, but also navigational instruments, all sorts of things. They're put on exhibition in 1886 at the Indian Colonial Exhibition in London. And this was on uh, on display. So a lot of the material that was on exhibition was acquired by the New South Wales government representative that was in London at the time. They're brought back here, and then they're they're now in very you know a number of different institutions across Sydney, um, here at the library here, the Australian Museum. But this particular one you can see here. There's actually a note which says, "Can you read that there?" Mrs. Cook always asserted that this Bible accompanied Captain Cook in his three voyages and was constantly used by him in reading the lessons and performing divine service according to the use of the Church of England. So all wow. of these objects have two you know, have different stories around them. And um, it's interesting because when you actually look at it, it doesn't look like it's very well used, does it? No, it's in very good condition. It's in very now. If you've been on three voyages, don't you think you'd have a little bit of water damage? <laughs> don't you think you'd naturally open? Books have have a memory, and when they're opened at certain pages, they will fall open to them. This doesn't fall open to any particular section of the Bible here, does it? If Cook had this with him on his voyages, I it suggests that he wasn't referring to it particularly often. <laughs> Cook's personal Bible. We have a magic collection here at the library. It's a working magician's collection. And this book that I'm opening and showing you now is called Miracle Mongers and Their Methods. And you can read the dedication here. It says, To my friend Robert Kudance, um, Dear RK, Take pleasure in sending you this book, as I know you will appreciate any efforts and at some time mentally lose among these miracle mongers and feel the heart throb of the old times Houdini, 1920. Wonderful. So this Wonderful. was written and then the dedication was written by Houdini <laughs> to his mate Robert Kudance. Absolutely extraordinary. See, it doesn't have to be incredibly old to be interesting. Just so many wonderful stories. Mm. Thank you for taking the time. It's It's been a, a rare treat to delve into some of these great little chapters of history and um, and I think many of our listeners will be very jealous of the, the connections that you get to make <laughs> with this history every day. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Matt. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.